Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Stratfor Talks, the monthly podcast where we take you deep into discussions on security and global affairs. I'm Ben Sheen. And I'm Marla Moore, and we're your hosts for the show. In today's podcast, we have three segments. First, South Asia analyst Faisal Pervez takes us to Pakistan to explore the way that religion's role in government has changed and how it's evolved through the years, and also why. Then, Chief Intelligence Officer John Sather will join us as part of Stratfor's 20th anniversary series to talk about five ways that technology has changed the world of intelligence since 1996. We'll wrap it up with a look inside the Stratfor mailbag as Riva Gujan takes a question from a listener in Canada. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or ideas for a podcast topic, drop us a line at stratfor.com slash podcast slash feedback. You can also follow us on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, where our handle is at Stratfor. And now, on with the first segment. In this first segment, we'd like to take a look at Pakistan, an Islamic republic that is bound up in an ongoing struggle between the forces of secularism and religion. This is a struggle that has been at the heart of Pakistan since its founding in 1947. The way this identity crisis has been shaped, and how it unfolds in the future, has many implications for South Asia, the wider Muslim world, and indeed for the West. Faisal Pervez, our South Asia analyst, is here to explain. Faisal, thanks for being here with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I think that this is actually a really important topic for us to look at because we at Stratfor have so many readers and people who write to us quite a lot. We we listen to them. We really respect their opinions. And in some cases, we find that uh, a good number of them have some views that are quite narrow, much narrower than ours as a globally focused company. Islam has a lot of diversity and a lot of strains of thought, and and, and Pakistan is one of those places where you see those debates and, and those exchanges uh, very much on display. So this is an excellent moment to talk with you about this. So perhaps we could start by defining the concept of secular for our audience and how that can be seen in a country that calls itself an Islamic republic. So I think that the word secularism can be very charged. And the first thing that I want to say is that there tends to be really two definitions that we're working with. The first definition in some of the Muslim world, meaning that when people hear that so-and-so is secular, tends to mean that they're not religious. And by extension, that means that they don't follow the tenets of the religion, perhaps that means that they drink alcohol, they don't pray regularly, and maybe they're sort of lax in their moral discipline. But I think that in a broader context, what a lot of people forget is secularism is less about a person's level of devotion, and it really is talking about the role of religion in a society. And in particular, Secularism says that religion should be in the private sphere. You can be as religious as you want, but this is something that should be separated from matters of the state. And really quickly, obviously, this is an issue that has been very well played out in the United States. One of the defining tenets uh, in the Bill of Rights is freedom of religion, and it was based on this idea because, of course, as we remember— One of the key motivations for those early pilgrims that came to the U.S. was to have freedom of religion and to be able to practice religion as you see fit. So I think it's very important from the outset to create that distinction that, once again, secularism does not necessarily talk about your level of devotion, but it just is talking about what is the role of religion in a society. 
So that's a good point, Faisal, because I think when many people think of Pakistan now, they think of its designation as something of a Muslim homeland. But if we go back to Pakistan's founding, actually, as the country came about in the violent period immediately following the British withdrawal and the partition of India, um, it was actually conceptualized as a place where people from different faiths, different religious systems could actually uh, coexist. Could you go into that sort of aspect of, of Pakistan a little bit more for us? I'm glad you mentioned the country's founding because I'm a very strong believer that if we are to have an accurate assessment of Pakistan in the present and in the future, we do have to briefly revisit the past. And in particular, the year 1947. Now, as you mentioned, Ben, there were two momentous events that took place in that year that really shook the foundations of South Asia. The first, of course, was that the British Empire, after nearly two centuries of rule, left the subcontinent. But the second thing is that in that story, we know that the principal character is Mahatma Gandhi. This is the person people tend to know best. But obviously here at Stratfor, uh, you know, we want to get into a bit of the nuances, uh, some of the important nuances that also lead uh, and shape the future. And there's always other characters. One key character in the story is a man named Muhammad Ali Jinnah. Jinnah basically saw an opportunity. He saw that since the British Empire is going to withdraw anyways, then we should ask for a separate homeland for South Asia's Muslims. And the reason why he said this was because he believed in something called the two-nation theory. And what that means is that in his eyes, Hindus, who formed a majority, were a separate nation, and Muslims from the minority were also a separate nation. To drive home this point, one thing that used to be discussed at that time was that here in one community, you have people that worship the cow, and in another community, they slaughter the cow. In one community, you have people that venerate idols. In another community, you have people who condemn idol worship. And in one community, you have people who worship God in thousands of forms. And in another community, God is considered one. And so at the end of the day, Jinnah succeeds. And in August of 1947, now as the British leave, there are two new nations. And the final point to make here is that there was one very important question that was left unresolved. And that was that is this new country called Pakistan, which just means a land of the pure, was this country going to be fashioned around the contours of religion, or was it simply going to be a country for South Asia's Muslims, uh, whatever your level of religion, whatever your level of persuasion? Uh, and much of the country's subsequent history is an attempt to try to answer this question that is Pakistan a secular country, meaning once again that religion is in the private sphere, or should it be a 
religious country. But the way that that question has been shaped and answered, and so many of us look at Pakistan from a historical viewpoint, and we see governments that have been largely ruled by the military, governments that have been toppled, a lot of political chaos at different times. How central was this question in in so much of that churn? There was one key problem that the early leadership of Pakistan faced, and that was that even though this two territories were carved out of India's northeastern and northwestern wings, which had a Muslim majority, the problem was that within those territories, there was a great degree of ethnic and cultural diversity. For instance, in the eastern wing, you had the Bengalis. They spoke their own language. They had a bit of a unique culture. And if you go to the western wing, you had the Pashtuns. You had the Balochis. You had the Sindhis. You had the Punjabis. And so you have all these different ethnic groups. And the problem that the early leadership faced was how do you get all these people that historically have viewed themselves as distinct, meaning that I am different than you, you are different than me, how do you unite them? And the fear that the early leadership had was that if they allowed democracy to take root, then each of these groups would try to vote for more independence or more autonomy, and if anything, weaken central power. So the early leadership came up with a solution, and they said that we are going to define the identity And by that, I mean it's an answer to a simple question that what does it mean to be a Pakistani? Their concern was that too many people answered that question by talking about their ethnicity. They wanted the answer to that question to be that I am a Muslim. That's what it means to be a Pakistani. So as a result, the early civilian and military leadership decided to craft Pakistan's identity upon religion. That actually ended up having some very serious consequences for the development of the country moving forward. But as you look at that, the way in the the time when religion became so closely tied to the government's philosophy, it wasn't actually for, for quite a number of years after Pakistan's founding. It is important to mention from the outset that in the early years, religion still did not play that big of a role. But nonetheless, one reason why religion was still put on the table as a way to shape the country's identity was because Pakistan recognized that because it was the state that seceded from India, that it had to find a way to really drive home the contrast. In other words, what makes Pakistan different from India. But Marla, I think you're touching upon something very important because as the country's trajectory went forward, we realized that it's important to keep in mind that Pakistan was born also in the shadow of the Cold War. And on top of that, Pakistan was located near the Soviet Union. So these two facts actually are a prelude to the presidency of a man named Ziaul Haq. And although, again, there's many factors here at play, 
if you go back into the country's history, if you and I had to choose one ruler of the country who we can say was most responsible for really aggressively pushing religion into politics, it was Huck. What ends up happening here is that Huck saw that there was that group called the Pashtun, and their community was divided between Pakistan and Afghanistan. And there was a movement called Pashtunistan in which the Pashtuns wanted their own land. And Huck's concern was that the Afghans wanted to basically carve a portion out of Pakistan to form this new land. The final point that I'll make here is that in 1979, the Soviets invade Afghanistan. So Huck sees an opportunity in something, and then Washington, who is, of course, fighting the Cold War, also sees a big opportunity as to uh, how to win the Cold War and as to how to squash the ethnic issues and to once again really drive home religion as the defining factor of identity. So, Faisal, I think you raise a number of really interesting points here, and it kind of comes back to this whole Stratforian idea that it doesn't matter what countries want to do in isolation. It doesn't matter internally how they try and craft themselves. There are always going to be these external factors that exert an influence on on how a country has to um, has to make its way in the world. And we see that most definitely in Pakistan. So clearly there are ideals. Uh, they have to evolve based upon internal pressures. And then all of a sudden, like you say, you have these tribal factors with the Pashtun elements that, that overlap the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan. And then you have the, the Soviet-Afghan conflict of the 1980s. You know, effectively another sort of Cold War proxy war that came about. How do these multiple factors, how do they shape the rise of religious extremism that we've seen in Pakistan? When the Soviets invade Afghanistan, Washington sees an opportunity to deal them a final blow. And so what Washington does is they say that we will fund and we will arm indigenous fighters in Pakistan and Afghanistan to go fight the Soviets. How do they do this? They send a little over $3 billion to, again, President Ziaul Huck. And they say, we'll give you the money, we'll give you the weapons, and then you can train, arm, and dispatch the what, the, what are called the Mujahideen, or Islamic religious warriors, to fight uh, the Soviets. And this is exactly what happens. But a problem arises, and this actually ends up shaping a lot of the the problems of religious fundamentalism that we see rattling Pakistan today. And that problem is that, you know, every society has extreme elements. That's that's not surprising. Uh, I mean, the real question is that how empowered are are these extremist elements? I mean, obviously... Everyone knows that in 1933 in Germany, the extreme element rose to power in the form of Adolf Hitler. Uh, So similarly, Pakistan has had an extreme fringe of religious fanaticism. But what ends up happening in the Soviet-Afghan war is that this element now is given a lot of weapons and a lot of money. So they become empowered by the Americans, no less. Yeah, good point. 
And what ends up happening is you see a decade long, I mean, a brutal war that ravages Afghanistan. One million Afghans die. Uh, But at the end of the day, the Soviets do retreat. And then two years later, in what is clearly a momentous event in the 20th century, we see the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now, Pakistan sees this opportunity because they recognize that by arming the fundamentalists, they were able to defeat a much larger power. Now, Pakistan's key dilemma is that from their founding, they have always had a fear that India uh, wishes for their dismemberment, for their demise. And so Pakistan was worried that India might also try to extend its influence into Afghanistan. And that for Pakistan would be a nightmare scenario that you have an enemy on both fronts. So the strategy then that Pakistan devised was that now the Soviets are gone. And once again, even though the Soviet part of the war ended, Afghanistan descends into a civil war. And there's a lot of warlords, a lot of competing factions, and they're fighting amongst each other. And Pakistan's objective was that we want to install a regime in Kabul that is friendly to us and which at the same time will not allow India to gain power. And this, of course, then is where the Taliban enters the picture. But now we see Nawaz Sharif in office for the third time. How is he falling down? On, on this whole secular versus religious extremist spectrum. Right. So a couple things to note. So number one, this is Nawaz Sharif's third term as prime minister, and no one else in Pakistani politics has served three terms. So this is unprecedented. But to really appreciate where Nawaz Sharif has arrived now in his political evolution, all we have to do is consider one fact. And that is that when he was prime minister during the second time back in the late 90s, he sponsored what was to be the 15th Amendment to Pakistan's constitution in which he wanted to introduce Islamic law into the constitution. So he wanted to, of course, once again, push religion uh, into the law. Now, once again, in Pakistani politics, as we've discussed All politicians have to navigate or rather calibrate a relationship with religion because that's such a dominant factor. So it's not always necessarily for personal reasons of piety, although he, from all accounts, is uh, he's, he's more of a religious person. So keeping that in mind, now we come to 2016 and what is what I think is a very interesting development in Pakistani politics is that we are seeing uh, the Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz, which is his party, uh, sponsoring a lot of very progressive legislation. For instance, a bill in the most populous province of the country that criminalizes all violence against women. We had another bill that, for the first time in the country's history, recognizes the rights of the Christian and Hindu minorities to celebrate Easter and Diwali, respectively. And finally, 
in which I think is a case that in very grim terms really personifies the secular versus religious debate, and that is that there was a man named Qadri. He was the bodyguard of the former governor of the state of Punjab, and that governor was progressive, and he was an outspoken critic of Pakistan's religious blasphemy laws. And he was speaking on a particular case, he was speaking out against the blasphemy laws, and his bodyguard was so incensed that he killed him. Now, just in February, just a couple months ago, Pakistan took what I think is a very bold move and they executed Qadri. But in doing so, I thought there was a very telling scene in which there's a picture and you can see this uh, small van and it is snaking through just a sea of human beings. There must be, uh, I don't know an accurate figure, but there must have been 30, 40, 50,000 people all swelling together in this public space. And in that van is Qadri's body. And these people are showering flower petals on the body. So I think that in this story, we see this sort of debate in Pakistan come full circle and that you have on the one hand, uh, there's an element that is trying to push for reforms. And once again, there's many factors here. Again, Nawaz Sharif is doing this more for pragmatic reasons. Uh, the military has played a very big role here in launching a campaign in which they have uh, killed, I think there's figures are 3,000 or 4,000 militants in the lawless Western region. So they've actually really been at the forefront as well in this campaign. But nonetheless, you still have this very deep, entrenched, impassioned element that once again wants Pakistan to tilt uh, towards religion. And so I think that going forward, uh, we're going to see, especially in the domestic political front, uh, a lot of the battles sort of swing between these two poles. There is a belief set, I think, among many, many of our readers that Islam is a culture that doesn't assimilate. It doesn't integrate well with other cultures. And this question of, you know, the degree of religiosity and, and whether that is a, a factor that shapes the government or a, a system or a culture that resides below the government is very central here because what you've described is, in essence, the Pakistani government taking on different shades and hues based on its geospatial relationships to other countries in different times of crisis. Right. No, absolutely. I think that a, a key subtext anytime we're talking about Islam and politics is the diversity of this faith. And uh, the diversity of also the politics and the political manifestations. And I do think that it is important to highlight that since the September 11th attacks, when Pakistan became a frontline front state in the global war on terror, at least I think 30,000, if not more, Pakistanis themselves have died at the hands of extremists. And I think that there are certain facts about our humanity which subsume ideology and politics, and those are the facts of life and death. When you have a family that gets news that, say, the son or daughter 
uh, was killed because, you know, there was a suicide bombing in a bazaar, you better believe that those people very strongly then have a reaction against the extremists, and they are also Muslim. So I think that what's very interesting, especially in the context of Pakistan, is that, yes, of course, the extremists themselves are from that country, and the extremists themselves follow the majority religion. But it's also important to highlight that the their enemies, their opponents, the people that are trying to push the charge of secularism, that are trying to expand the rights of minorities, are also Muslim. They're also from that same country. So I, I think that one thing that is so important the, that Stratford adds to the conversation, again, is that subtlety that anytime we begin to paint entire cultures or even entire countries with this broad brush that well, if they are part of one faith, they must all have a violent tendency. They must all have an aggressivism to them. They must all be anti-Western actually takes away from our analysis. And so, you know, like I said, I think you raised a wonderful point here in that uh, there are many shades and many hues of religiosity. Some Pakistanis are not religious and they're also Muslim. Some are devout. And there are plenty of people who are in both camps who reject extremism. Um, And so I think, uh, you know, the, the final point here is that history has bore out this lesson that when religion and politics mix, that can really be a toxic brew. And once again, you go back to the 1980s, that for strategic reasons, there were people in Washington who believed that if we're going to arm jihadists, maybe that's not our preferred option, but it is defeating a bigger evil, and that is the Soviet Union. And one lesson that I take away from foreign policy is that a lot of times you have to decide between not an easy and a hard choice, but a hard choice and a difficult choice. And there's usually vigorous debates around why people make these decisions. And if they would have decided differently, there may have been different consequences. And that's a debate I think that will never die. It will go on. Uh, But nonetheless, yeah, I think that the final point is that there is diversity here, not only in religion, but also in the politics. And I think that if we are going to be good and insightful students of geopolitics, then as you mentioned, Marla, it's very important to really dive into the nuance to get a clear view. So Faisal, absolutely, these are are critical things to consider. And as we've seen from from Sharif, even he's adjusting his politics. You know, his focus has been on economics, possibly over even uh, religion in the country because he understands, you know, the requirements to to run the country effectively. So what are all these various factors? What does this mean for Pakistan's future right now? What are we going to see over the next few years? What can we expect? So there's two things I want to say here. The first is that in the study of geopolitics, it's important to recognize that there are personal forces and then there are impersonal forces within which political actors operate. And so I think that definitely, I want to mention from the outset that the the person who happens to be in the prime minister's chair right now is Nawaz Sharif. But it could have been one of any number of people And because of the constraints that are surrounding their decisions, that they probably would have taken a similar path. 
So with that said, what right now is one of Pakistan's objectives in the near future? Well, this comes down to economics, that the leadership in Pakistan recognizes that if they're going to grow their economy, if they're going to give people meaningful jobs, if they're going to give the people a stake in a bright and prosperous future, then part of that means that you have to extinguish the fires of extremism. And the way to do that again is launch a vigorous anti-militant campaign, which as I've mentioned, the military is currently in the process of prosecuting. But I think that at the same time, because economic reform itself can be just a very tall mountain to climb. There are so many factors that are at play. There are so many entrenched interests um, that tend to get in the way. I mean, you have issues of infrastructure. Pakistan has an energy problem. They have blackouts. I mean, sometimes uh, several hours a day, the lights are out. And um, the leadership right now recognizes that if they are going to attract the foreign direct investment needed to build up the economy once again, they have to um, uh, attack the extremist angle here. And so that is one reason why I think that you're seeing the government try to push these social reforms, because on the one hand, it is trying to project an image of a more moderate and tolerant Pakistan to the world, a type of Pakistan that you would want to invest in. And so I think that going forward, you're going to see Islamabad try to once again expand minority rights. That includes women's rights. That includes once again the rights of religious minorities as well. But I think that certainly the path towards that destination will not be smooth. And the reason why is that even though Pakistan's religious political parties have historically not gained more than 10% of the vote at the polls, they have learned the art of the protest. They know how to get out and mobilize and how to have their demands met that way. And in response to this recent raft of legislation, there was a conference of many of the country's religious political parties. And one of their ideas that they have put forth in the near future is they want to launch a million-man march to the capital of Islamabad uh, to make these protests. So I think that, and recently uh, with Muntaz Qadri, again, the bodyguard who was executed, in response to his execution, you had protesters gather outside of the parliament building in Islamabad, and they were going to stay put. I mean, they said that, I mean, you can do what you want, we're not leaving here. And they had a series of demands they wanted met. And at the end of the day, Islamabad was able to negotiate an end to the protests. But how did they do it? They said that, okay, we will not change the religious blasphemy laws. So the protesters got what they wanted. So I think that we can expect to see in the future definitely efforts on the part of Islamabad to try to push the boundaries of tolerance. 
but you're going to see an equally forceful response from the other end in the form of protests uh, from the the deeply religious element that wants to see a more religious country in the future. As you said earlier, the way that this whole discussion and debate plays out inside Pakistan has uh, regional and, and also right. international exactly. implications, and, and no more, more so than if you're India, thinking about a militant threat on your borders, trained on Kashmir, trained on you, Afghanistan has a ways to go, but has quite a bit of influence and, and interplay in all of this. And of course, when you think about the jihadist threat, we do see those those kinds of interactions and, and those kinds of implications. No, absolutely. I think it's a it's a it's a great point to end on actually, and that is that to understand why religious extremism has been able to rage, you have to look at the intersection between geopolitics and ideology. And what have been the grand strategies of outside powers and how have they also tried to exploit these dynamics on the ground? And uh, and absolutely, I think that what you're seeing right now, the debate that is taking place within Pakistan, is that you do now have this younger generation that is becoming more politically active. And it will be very interesting to see that how does this younger, more moderate generation, as they go to the polls, as they mobilize, as they let their voices be heard, really shape this dialogue going forward? And again, it comes down to a matter of interpretation. You have some people that, I guess I'll end it on this note, that it reminds me of how uh, there was a man named Abraham Lincoln. And during the Civil War, he, in one of his great speeches, was saying that each side in this civil war is invoking the same God against the other. And I think it once again goes to show that so often it's not the texts, but it is who is interpreting those texts, how are they interpreting them, what sort of money and power and influence is behind these people, and that so often shapes the world in which we live in today. Well, Faisal, thank you so much for spending your time with us today. It was really my pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. For our next segment, we're glad to welcome back Chief Intelligence Officer John Sather. As you know, strapped for celebrating our 20th anniversary during 2016, and we're engaging in an occasional series throughout the year on 20 ways the world has changed during that time. Our first segment in the series featured Fred Burton on five ways the world has changed since 9-11. And in today's installment, John, who's a CIA veteran, will be exploring five ways technology has changed intelligence work. So that is a fairly significant topic. What would you like to kick off with? Technology in a nutshell and no headlines for anybody has changed so significantly in the last 20 years. Um just measured by the idea that technology has changed since yesterday. Um, when we're talking in intelligence, there are several areas uh, that I'd like to focus on with, with you today. And uh, briefly, they are the following. Uh, cyber and cyber threats and cyber technology, social media and how social media has affected uh, intelligence collection and uh, the gamut of information collection, including marketing and other means that social media is is used for, uh, imagery or imminent, 
one of the major collections, has grown exponentially in the last 20 years, and again, even in the last one year, uh, with tremendous amounts of imagery available from Google Earth to uh, companies like Allsource and others that produce fantastic, very granular imagery for just the average person like us. I'd also like to focus on the surveillance technology and the incredible growth that technology represents for monitoring consumers and also intelligence targets. And uh, lastly, the importance of encryption and how the use of encryption will dictate uh, how we communicate with one another in ways that are very secure and point-to-point. So encryption as a metaphor for a letter as opposed to non-encryption when you would write a postcard. So, John, it seems like with this proliferation of technology that that we've seen over the last couple of decades, it seems to me to be at the moment something of a double-edged sword because there have traditionally been uh, certain technologies, especially during the Cold War, that particularly fell into the realm of intelligence services, of, of, you know, what was in within the resources of a nation state. Whereas now anyone with a laptop, anyone with a tablet can access the internet and through that has this whole wealth of information at their fingertips. What could you say about that? Well, it's incredibly valuable for the average person to be able to dive deep into the internet and other forms of big data and pursue their own interests. Uh, It's the purpose of the internet. Uh, It's the purpose of what we seek to produce here at Stratfor in producing good analysis from intelligence from all forms. The challenge for an intelligence service, the challenge for the average person, and certainly the challenge for us here in Stratfor, is how do we manage that big data, that amount of information that is presently available? How do we tag that? How do we make sense of all the disparate pieces of information that is necessary for us to understand complex issues simply? So the amount available on the internet crosses all spans of information. Uh, We can do searches and find out what the Iranians are considering in their politics, what their constraints are, how they're affected by the Israelis, um, how the Israelis are affected by the Iranians, uh, the P5 plus 1 negotiations from the recent or year ago uh, nuclear negotiations. The average person can find out so much in open source information or all source information that, as you mentioned, uh, was previously in the world only of espionage. So I have a a former colleague, his name is Mike Sulik, and he retired from the agency as deputy director of operations. He was the the DDO, the chief of all intelligence, uh, whom I worked for and many others. Um, Mike left the agency, went into the private sector, did a lot of work and um, in open source and areas. And when Mike came back in for InBrief, uh, when he returned to the agency after the two years uh, outside, um, in a series of briefings with many of us, would make the comment, and he made the comment specifically to me and uh, interlocutors that, that he had in the same room, how do we use open source? How are you in this world 
using what is available in open source and how do you separate that from what is difficult to obtain but open source and impossible to obtain in open source where you would need to devote intelligence resources to get at that information. And so that goes to the crux of it, where the idea that we in the intelligence organizations at that time and still need to be able to handle the information and prioritize information that can only be obtained through means of professional intelligence services. Much of those means now, after 20 years, and especially after the last 10 years, um, is available to the common people all over the world. Um, the idea then, therefore, is to answer Mike's question, and that is, what do we need to, what did we need to concentrate on information that was not that, uh, was not open source? And so that becomes an issue of prioritization and continuously striving to comb through all of open source. And when we, have in, uh, when we had intelligence objectives, uh, like we do now in Stratfor, uh, where can we get that answered? And what we use in Stratfor is all source, open source. Uh, what the agency used and other intelligence agencies around the world used is open source and then that next level that cannot be obtained through uh, normal means of open source. And I'm so glad that you touched on that because open source intelligence is so much a part of what Stratfor has always done. One of the reasons we're actually located in Austin has to do with access to university libraries, which was um, very key in 1996. The Internet was not what it is today, obviously, at that point. Hotmail and email were very new things. And uh, one of the reasons that Stratfor at that point was sort of technologically on the cutting edge was that we were using email as our primary, actually our only uh, distribution platform. We never had a physical printed product of what we were distributing. It was it was always online. And that takes us into really the first trend, uh, one, of the, one of the huge shifts and changes that we've seen in the last 20 years when we want to talk about cyber as a trend. I don't think cyber was even a word that we used in the English language within you know, the vast majority of circles in 1996. Cyber has so many dimensions. Let's just focus on one of them here for purposes of this discussion. But cyber can represent um, uh, hostile services taking advantage of the market, where you've seen uh, cyber attacks against Target or against Home Depot or you name the entity that has been uh, targeted by those who would do ill will. And for purposes of disruption or for purposes of, uh, you know, perhaps competition or uh, stealing credit card information, uh, that's a new normal. Uh, cyber also represents activities that are conducted by nation states uh, against other nation states, uh, in some cases, to steal um, commercial information. Uh, the Chinese uh, play high in the headlines that are uh, continuously on a daily basis on information that's been purloined from various databases and so forth. It is a new normal. One last thing I'd say on that is that there's very little legislation. How do you legislate this kind of use, marketing use, 
other use of technology in a civil liberties? Um, what is the legislation when a company is attacked by a rival company or a foreign company or their, and their information is attacked or their finances are removed uh, and or otherwise somehow adversely affected by a cyber attack against their interests? What is the right and proper retaliatory scaled response? Is there one? Who should do it? And so cyber has changed our world in so many ways. Um, and, and those are just, you know, two, cyber attack, cyber security. Um, cyber is a, is a very large issue, and there's a huge industry that's providing support and insight and guidance. And oh, absolutely. This is one of those, it's a man-made warfare domain, but it's also a place where the interests of private individuals, businesses, and governments all very much meet on an equal plane. And that's, frankly, terrifying for most of them. It is. I mean, there, there, it's a real issue of balancing civil liberties, uh, consumer rights, and the right to privacy. Uh, you know, the intelligence agencies are strongly criticized for that capability of monitoring huge amounts of call data, toll data, who calls whom. And it's right to have that public debate. We do need legislation. There needs to be controls uh, for the average person so that their civil liberties are protected. At the same time, companies uh, are marketing information derived from social media and other, you know, Internet history and cookies and so forth. Uh, that is also of concern. And so they're separate issues, civil liberties and then the rights of companies for marketing and marketing technology and so forth. But these are debates that are ongoing, need to be had. There has to be public discourse, and there is, and it's right to do so. And we need to balance the capability of that kind of monitoring of people's activities with the notion of civil liberties. You know, the president has suggested, as extended, that the civil liberties of individuals overseas are the same as they are here in the United States. There's a lot of debate about that. Uh, is that so? Uh, well, um, then how does an intelligence organization go about their business? And so those are live debates. They're happening in the United States and elsewhere uh, in Europe um, post the Paris attacks. So these are very important debates and discussions that are going on that people do become involved in and feel very passionately about. And, you know, for intelligence collection purposes, uh, it's incredibly important to have the latitude to be able to use the technology available to safeguard the nation. That's what it's all about. I think you raised some really, really good points there, John. Certainly at the forefront is actually being informed about what is going on. I think more often than not, people... Um, they don't necessarily understand the, the scope of the actual debate itself. And you mentioned a very good point that there was this huge um, backlash in public opinion against the data that the NSA was collecting, specifically a lot of the metadata in huge quantities, where actually people's identities were effectively filtered out the equation. But actually, that data mining really pales into comparison with the amount of personal information that's collected daily by, you know, supposedly surreptitious commercial websites. And that's that's clearly something that, that isn't as heavily regulated as government bodies and agencies are. Um, so actually, I had, I had a question going back to the nature of intelligence work and fieldcraft. For, for an actual intelligence officer, how has this move into the cyber realm really changed their day-to-day -day business? Well, it, obviously, it makes it much more complex because in 
conducting intelligence activity uh, for a nation state. So in my own history with the CIA, the Internet existed when I began, but it did not pose the threat to security that it does now. We talk about the idea of digital exhaust. So if I travel around, if I rent a car, uh, if I check out a library book or a Netflix movie or buy a book from Amazon or elsewhere, I'm leaving, parenthetically, digital exhaust everywhere I go. So there's, there's evidence of where I am at all times. Uh, that makes clandestine intelligence collection a lot more difficult and therefore over the years incrementally step by step deliberately and inexorably we've changed our they have changed their tradecraft in order to meet and exceed what vulnerabilities technology represents to the security of an operation that's a long way of saying that technology is a very useful capability, again, without saying, without, there's no headlines for anybody, but it also is a vulnerability. And an intelligence operative needs to be mindful of that and is, and is trained to be so, uh, to maintain the security of the operation, to protect the sources, the human beings, and all the sources, imagery and whatnot, from exposure. And in that world, of the conduct of espionage, that's the idea. You, We have to protect those people and those methods from allowing a compromise that would then prevent us from being able to collect that information that would affect the security, in our case, of the United States of America. Well, you raise a duality, actually, in that and going into kind of your next trend, which is the rise of social media, which certainly didn't exist 20 years ago. I mean, for as much as you say that intelligence work is made more complex and challenging in many ways um, by the rise of cyber venues, um, it would seem that it would be made exponentially easier by the rise of social media because we have become a, a world and a generation of Sharers, uh, We like to tell people things about ourselves that we didn't used to share. There used to be these things called private thoughts. You know, in the entity of Facebook, Facebook has somewhere around a billion and a half users. And that's a larger population than any country on the planet. It's a cyber entity, but it is bigger than any country on the planet. Twitter, if it was a country... It's 300 million users would rank it fourth in the population in the world, just behind the United States. So it's an incredible amount of population that now it's just normal. Uh, It is normal to have that kind of social media in our daily lives and very, very useful. The challenge is for you and me and everyone else is how much personal information should go on there. Let's just, let's say that you're not part of the intelligence community and therefore you uh, would not be a target for an intelligence operation, perhaps. But the average person, there is so much information on there. Um, I don't know if the pendulum will swing, but it's, it is also a new normal where People put very personal information on there in a very open way. It's like writing a postcard and sending it on its way. 
that amount of personal information that's available to me is not particularly comfortable uh, for others. Um, it's just the way it's done. Um, perhaps the pendulum will swing back toward uh, more privacy, certainly beyond a legal issue, but just in the day-to-day conduct of, of human beings, uh, on being more careful about what they put on there. Now, people can agree or disagree, but um, the technology available through a cell phone um, is a perfect tool for the conduct of a new form of surveillance that's enabled by this incredible technology. Uh, And so it's important for people to be mindful of that in terms of their daily conduct. I think that's a that's a really good point because oftentimes with any new technology or any new realm, it does take time to learn how to navigate that and for the legislation and the laws that, that govern that new realm to actually take effect and come into effect. So certainly these discussions are being had. John, there was another aspect of something you mentioned that I wanted to ask you about particularly, and it's it's another you know another part of the the intelligence realm, but. How do you see um, cyber capability affecting things such as subversion or coercion or the ability to spread a message for good or bad or even to recruit? How do you see uh, cyber affecting that specifically? Cyber and let's say social media is a platform that is meant to be exploitable. It's, It's information that is out there on an individual or an entity, a company, a movie, anything that is meant to be used, that is meant to be actioned. And so, again, um, the idea of privacy is critically important, and that remains with the person and how that individual decides he or she would comport themselves in an open uh, venue like Facebook or any other form of social media. Um, There are individuals, uh, criminals, Uh, intelligence organization adversaries um, that will target that on individuals that could be either targeted because of what they put on the web that could be a motivation or a vulnerability that would make them susceptible to some form of an operation. Um, There are companies that would exploit that information of what that individual is interested in purchasing or buying or considering or traveling. Um, It is exploitable, actionable information that people put on social media. That is valuable to intelligence organizations. That is valuable to marketing. And so the idea of what the individual is comfortable with putting on there and then dealing with the consequences is paramount. Well, there's there's a tremendous amount of information that we've been able to collect that's actually very interesting. I mean, not only nation states like Russia and China um, that do things in the cyber realm, but, you know, insurgent groups like the Islamic State using social media as a recruiting tool. I mean, because so much of what we put forward in social media is immediate and emotional. And there's no better time to target someone, whether you're doing it for a... a a cause or or for marketing for that matter than when they're feeling emotional about something that's that's always valuable information. I just wanted to mention to you um, briefly 
you know, where we started, the idea of managing big data. And so we have technology that has increased the amount of information available to us from the Internet, from wonderful technology um, that makes this concept of so-called big data a real challenge for the average person and for us specifically in Stratfor. So the amount of information that we bring in on a daily basis, some of our analysts review 3,000 emails a day, up to, we'll say, because I don't think that's physically possible, but up to a very high number like that, emails a day, managing big data in that way is terribly inefficient. And so we're changing that. We've changed that. We've gone to much better information handling systems. But then part and parcel of that is how do we search that? How do we retain that information that we've used in our analysis? Uh, how do we tag it so that we know that the veracity of that news media outlet or that source of information uh, has a veracity level that leaves us confident that it is accurate in fact and factually based to use in finished analysis. Well, how do we keep track of all that? And all that big data, that's the business of the future, managing big data. There are wonderful companies that are that do that, that scrape open source information from thousands of websites every day and translate it, and then it's available, and then you can use very interesting uh, kinds of data uh, data manipulation services to graphically represent. So, for instance, there was a an event um, that happened on violence against a police officer in the United States. Uh, the social media, Twitter and so forth, were collected, and the number of tweets and others uh, was represented in a heat map. And so, in red, there was a little glowing orb in that location in the United States, and then there was a timeline, and you can play that timeline for 30 seconds. And we have that here. We have that kind of capability here. But if you look at that 30-second timeline, which represents 24 hours, you can see that that red heat map where that event started then is proliferated up and down the East Coast, up and down the West Coast, throughout the Midwest more sparsely, but through the Midwest, and then into the Middle East and North Africa. And it's just amazing to see where that one event within 24 hours spread on that uh, in illustrating graphically what that, what that ha what happened and how that became, uh, how people became conscious of that event throughout the world within 24 hours or less and often i mean it was on the east coast within five minutes All right well going viral is is a going fascinating viral. process and going it viral. goes uh much faster than the zika virus <laughs> as a matter so of all fact. of that to say that managing big data is incredibly complex and to do so in a way that we can convey to the reader uh in a simple way not a simplistic way but in a simple way, that complex amount of data is a challenge that wasn't 20 years ago.
Oh, absolutely. Well, going on to yet another trend, and if this tells you nothing else, encryption is important. Let's just leave it at that. If you want to keep things private, encryption is incredibly important. But one of the things that's not maybe so much connected to uh, the rest of this discussion from an internet or cyber social media standpoint is the changes in satellite imagery and camera technology and what that's able to do for us. I mean, it used to be that satellite imagery was in the purview of governments only. And you, unless you were a meteorologist and you had a different kind of a use for it, you didn't really have access to this stuff. But that's really changed. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, you know, anyone can go on the Internet and go into Google Earth and take a look, plug in their address, and there's their house with the red van that they used to have or whatever it is or a more recent picture. Uh, it's just incredibly useful, interesting information. And for so many areas, for the spread of disease, the spread of wildfire, um, there are layered amounts of information that can be put on the imagery that can depict better than a picture's worth a thousand words. And uh, just a a small pitch for Stratfor is that uh, we're doing a lot more of that. We're striving to make our finished analysis on forecasting and prediction and scenario planning uh, more rich and more um, readily available in a simple but not simplistic way. And so oftentimes that can be done through imagery or that can be done through other forms of graphic. Um, and uh, and that's exciting. Oh, it's, it's incredibly important, I think, also because sometimes those satellite images that we get can confirm a forecast that we've made, or they might refute it and cause us to go back and look at what changed on the ground that didn't fit our model. And that's always a a very important and interesting debate that we tend to have. Exactly right. In in a world of almost limitless data, the the conveyance of that becomes incredibly important. And certainly that's one of the things that we strive to do here, which is to to get the information in the most digestible format. And again, uh, you know, having the ability to represent things visually in a way that just kind of leaps off the screen into your mind is is really important because a lot of things that, that we approach here are quite complicated. And if we can get that information across in a, a clear, digestible way, then that's a win. Be very interested in what our listeners have to say and uh, comments and insights on technology that has changed and where we're going with this. It's only going to become more complex. There will be more and better technology. The CEO here has predicted that human drones, that we'll be using drones for transportation within the next decade. Well, I think that's pretty interesting. And that might get me out of my traffic dilemmas. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, John, thank you so much for your time today, and we really appreciate you being here to share these thoughts with us. Thank you so much. Before we leave you today, we have one item to share with you from Stratfor's mailbag. This question comes to us from Spencer Keyes in Vancouver, who was intrigued by an article he saw last month in McLean's magazine. Writer Paul Wells quoted General Philip Breedlove, NATO's supreme allied commander in Europe, who said that, quote, Russia and the Assad regime are deliberately weaponizing migration from Syria in an attempt to overwhelm European structures and break European resolve. Spencer wants to know, what is the benefit to Russia of doing such a thing, and aren't the risks too high? Here's Riva Goujon, Stratford's Vice President of Global Analysis, with the response. 
So I think Breedlove captured what's at stake in Europe very well. And to answer this question, we have to look more closely at what are Russia's imperatives. So Russia has been dealing with this very big dilemma in that the West, led by the United States, has been, uh, from a Russian perspective, encroaching on the former Soviet sphere. And Russia has always had this paranoia that the West is going to keep creeping in closer and closer, that Russia will no longer have any buffer to protect itself. And when Russia knows that there are some much harder years ahead, when you look at Russia economically, demographically, a number of issues that are going to challenge Russia internally, Russia needs to ensure that beyond its borders, it has some security in place. And so, of course, when we see all of this talk about NATO building building up its presence uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, U.S. aid to Ukraine, um, you know, negotiations taking place between Lithuania and Belarus, uh, ongoing buildup in the Baltics with Poland. All of this is very alarming to the Russians. And so then the Russians have to figure out how do we stop this? How do we place limits on that? And so then if we look at the tactics, how do they do that? And one of Russia's big imperatives has always been to ensure that you can sow divisions between the Europeans and the Americans, because if you can prevent a united front, you're going to have a better chance of of mitigating this threat, um, especially emanating from NATO. And then how do you do that, right? Where do you find a good divisive issue between the Europeans and the Americans? And one of the ways uh, that Russia has tried to do this is it's looked at the Middle East, which really has been a land of great opportunity for the Russians and looking for leverage uh, to use against the United States and with Europe. And so we see that very much in the Syrian conflict. Europe is in a very fragile state, right? The entire European project is in question, and you have this surge behind nationalist and Eurosceptic forces. And of course, you know, the, the migrant issue is something for nationalist and Eurosceptic parties to feast on as they're trying to build up their political momentum. And the more that builds, the more Europe fragments. And that's exactly why this is an existential issue for the Europeans. And so it is a web of, you know, different players, different conflicts, but that is essentially what the Americans are seeing and what many of the Europeans are seeing when they see Russia's involvement in the Syrian conflict. On the other hand, Russia can play the other side of this, where they can also dial down the conflict, work on the peace process in Syria, show that it can be the good guy, the mediator to resolve this whole thing. And Russia can then use that as leverage in its negotiations with the Europeans, with the Americans to say, you need me in order to solve this very big conflict, your migrant conflict, the Syrian civil war, the whole thing. Um, but there are some serious limits to that, as we can see today, even as Russia has been trying to enforce a ceasefire, bring the Assad regime to the table. I mean, the ceasefire is pretty much evaporated at this point. We have, um, you know, fighting has been escalating for several days now. The loyalist forces backed by Iran are trying to make another siege on Aleppo. Um, and Russia doesn't necessarily want that. And that's, you know, the the cost of a coalition. You can't always control uh, your allies, and especially in a conflict as divisive as the Syrian one. 
And so I don't know if the Europeans are necessarily um, implying that Russia is trying to funnel terrorists into Europe because Russia is very wary of that blowback itself. Um, and already we're seeing, you know, some some unnerving signs in, in Russia's own um, er- Muslim areas in Dagestan and Gushetia, where, of course, Russia has to keep a very uh, close eye on the level of militancy there. Um, I think more of the fear is that, you know, Europe is already in this very fragmented state where all officials are now acknowledging that, um, you know, that state rights are being reasserted, that we can't continue to operate on a European Union level um, in any realistic degree. And as we see that migrant issue just put more social, more economic pressure uh, on these governments, that that is only going to lead to more polarized electorate. Uh, and, and that's really the force that's that's pulling Europe apart. And it's no coincidence, right, that we see a lot of allegations of Russia funding and supporting many of these Eurosceptic and nationalist parties within Europe, because that goes back to its original strategy. Try to sow those divisions as best as you can so that the United States won't have a united bloc within Europe to lean on. It really just comes down to leverage. You know, Russia knows that ultimately it has the weaker hand here, that the United States still has a lot of options to build up its presence, uh, to provide military assistance to countries where Russia really wants to maintain some buffer there. Uh, and, you know, Russia economically is is weakening. They need to find some leverage and Syria provides that to them. So I don't think it's as though Russia went into Syria with the intent of just pumping migrants into Europe, knowing that it would have all these effects. I think as we saw that migrant crisis grow in Europe, we saw essentially a merging of interests where Russia was focused on the fight against Islamic State. It was looking for leverage by showing that it could uh, you know, be a major factor in any sort of post-Assad um, scenario with Syria and negotiating with the United States and other players. And now it has an additional lever to use against the Europeans. But again, it all just comes back to how strong is that lever in the end if Russia can't also show it has the ability to dial down that pressure. And that's where I think we're seeing that really come into question now. Well, that's all we have time for today. But please don't forget to reach out to us on social media with any questions or comments you might have, or drop us a line at stratfor.com slash podcast slash feedback. As always, for more in-depth analysis on any of these topics, check out the website at stratfor.com. Stay tuned, and we look forward to having you join with us next time. <laughs>